Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast. Welcome back. We're excited you're here. And we're excited to teach you Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Ben Graham, Phil Town. Oh, putting yourself on the list, Dad. Guy, no. Guy Spear. <laughs> Guy Spear, Manesh Pabrai. Manesh Pabrai. Let's just list the list that we always list. Yeah, because these, these. I like how you added yourself to I'm, that list. I'm putting myself in there because this list are people who've written books <clears throat> that I strongly recommend. And even though Danielle is my daughter, she thinks that perhaps one or two of these other books might be better than my own in no. terms of no no mine's the best well i admit i haven't read all of those books and i admit i told guy spear that you thought his book was the best one you'd ever read well i wrote him a letter saying that you guys should all pick up this book it's called the education of a value investor it's a really beautiful this is how i describe it it's a beautiful meditation on what value investing can do for the rest of your life. It, it talks a lot about what kind of investing he does and like why he chooses the companies he chooses and his process. But I think the most interesting part is how all of that information can influence the, the other stuff that you do. I mean, one of the most interesting things he said that I always think about now is, um, is that he set up his environment in which he invests to support his value investing, which I thought was fascinating. I had never thought about that. How your environment really influences your actual investment choices. So like he um, used to, so he used to be like kind of a trader in New York, I, I think. And he had a Bluebird, a Bloomberg terminal, which spits out like constant stock information, right? I've actually right. never seen a Bloomberg terminal, but I sort of imagine it as this like, cranky old computer that just sort of like spits out numbers and so he had one and i think they cost like 20 grand a year or something to subscribe to these things and so it's a big investment and um and he actually he said he still has one in the in the book he says he still has one but he put it in a side room so that in his actual office where he goes every day he wouldn't be so influenced by the constant update on stock prices and on stock news and on what's happening in the market overall. He also moved himself from New York to Zurich in order to get away from the Wall Street energy, in order to get away from other people who are focusing day to day on short term trades when he wants to be focused on long term trades. So he literally physically took himself out of that environment, which I thought was like amazing. It's so interesting. Well, and, me, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that that I know Guy pretty well, and I know that he really is uh, he's really moral conscious, hardworking, uh, and very, very brilliant fund manager. And he recognizes the power of this sort of institutional mindset, this, this group consciousness that happens in big uh, financial centers like London and New York and, and uh, Hong Kong, Tokyo. Um, where you almost end up with groupthink. You're influenced so much by the masses. So it's no, it's no accident that Warren Buffett, who went to school in New York City, um, moved back out to Omaha to, to be an investor, that Manesh Prabhai, who is uh, out of India, has, lives in Irvine, California, in Orange County, 
um, that Guy lives in Zurich, that I live south of Atlanta um, and lived in Jackson Hole for many years, um, where Danielle grew up in part. And, you know, there's a reason for that. You, you have to protect your mind. If you're watching CNBC all day long or a Bloomberg terminal or you're surrounded by people who have groupthink going on, you're influenced dramatically by all that. <clears throat> and the problem with being an investor like us is that you have to have control of your emotion because you have to wait in cash for long periods of time until these targets that you've selected go on sale. Um, and when they go on sale, <clears throat> the groupthink is going to be so powerful that, that everything's too scary to buy right now. You have to run for the hills. That groupthink will, will stop you dead from, from moving into that investment in a large way. Uh, Charlie Munger lives in Pasadena, you know, and Charlie doesn't think anything's out of the ordinary of owning three companies. That's it, like three with the entire portfolio. And he said, if you're incapable of, of loading up the truck when you know you have a great investment and you know it's on sale, you know, this kind of investing just isn't for you. You know, you can't nibble at this. You can't have 150 things that you own a little bit of each so that you're safe. And you will yeah, not get I these think, results. I think Guy's point in in noticing, I mean, it, what, what really struck me is because it's a lot of what we talk about on this podcast about noticing what's going on with, around you and how it influences your investing decisions. And I just hadn't particularly thought about my environment until he talked about that. Um, and I think his point is none of us are special. You know, it's human nature to notice what people around you think and to go like, whoa, everybody else is selling all their stocks. Should I sell all my stocks? Yeah. Or everybody else thinks the world is coming to an end. Should I like get out of the market and not buy anything else? And when the whole point of his investing, and I mean, if that's your if that's your thing, cool, do that. But if your investing strategy is to go counter to the market, essentially, and when it's dipping, you buy, then you don't want to be around people who are freaking out at that moment. Right. You actually maybe want to sort of take yourself away from it and hold your own counsel and avoid the energy of these other people. Um, well, a really good I, example that of that. Was, that was a really cool way to think about not only like the actual actions that we take as investors, but like what are the influences around us that we may not even be noticing. And I, I really want to make the point that that as an individual investor, you don't have a lot of that pressure that exists when you're managing other people's money. That's a good point. That's true. That's a good point. And you want to, you just want to think of yourself as as a as a, like you would as a real estate investor. You know, you're not going to own a hundred homes all at once and trade them all over the place and end up with thousands of them in your lifetime. If you're just buying real estate like people did around me, some of my neighbors here, you know, they were buying real estate in auctions at the courthouse down here south of Atlanta. And they were picking up homes for $60,000, $75,000 that would cost $150,000 to build if somebody gave you the land. And they were not afraid, right? I mean, there's a lot of fear around the markets. And these guys were going in and buying because they were taking their own counsel. They recognized this is a good house. It's in a good neighborhood. Uh, it'll be here in 20 years in a good neighborhood. I can mow the yard. I can paint the house. I can get this much rent. And when I get this much rent, I have this many expenses, and I know I'm going to go home at the end of the year with $8,000. That's absolutely what's going to happen. 
And that $8,000 of owner's cash flow means that I can pay $80,000 for this place because I can buy it as a 10 cap rate and get a fabulous deal. And look, I'm able to buy it from the court. I'm going to go in and bid 50 and that didn't work. Then I bid 60, 65. I know where my limit is. My limit is 80 because that's a super deal with a 10 cap. And I get it for 72. Bingo. I'm a, I'm, it's a home run. I'm a buyer. That's not rocket science. That is not something where a 160 IQ beats a 100 IQ. I mean, those, those people are ordinary people just like you and me who do that all the time all around the United States. And all we're doing is saying you can do the same thing with companies. You can absolutely do it. You apply almost exactly the same criteria, not only to the company, but to yourself. And then you step in there and be bold when you know you have a deal. So let's. last time we were going through a checklist that you came up with for, um, for valuation. And let's continue on that. And then at the end, let's finish talking about environment and, and how it can influence. Okay, good. So the checklist is just a portion of a larger checklist. This is a checklist for determining if a business is on sale. It assumes you know how to judge that the business is wonderful. That's a different checklist. But let's just recap here that we said, first, we want to make sure that the historical growth rates reasonably consistent. We're looking out the back window of the car there and seeing it's, you know, okay, based on that, this is, a, you know, the future might be predictable. Then and the second thing is- missed, um missed the last podcast, you might want to go back and just listen to it where we talked about these first three in more detail, but let's just run through them quickly here. Okay, so historical growth rate. That's looking out the back window of the car. Then the second one is the future growth rate, which is what we're going to base the value on because the future growth rate of cash is what's going to tell us how much this thing is worth today. And so you've got to have that to be reasonably predictable out seven to 10 years, which of course is very much a moat question. Do you have a durable moat, which you had to answer before already? You had to know that. Okay, then the third one is now we got to put a multiple on our earnings to figure out what those, you know, the value of the earnings, which is called a PE ratio. And we're going to use a PE ratio that reflects a good market, what we'd call a bull market, because we don't have to sell this in any particular time. We're just going to arbitrarily say we're going to sell it in 10 years. And we want to put in a PE ratio that's reasonable and not exceeding historical PE ratios. Uh, some industries have a lot lower PE ratios in general than others. So you just want to check that. So the P.E. ratio for a bull market sale in 10 years is reasonable and historical. Then we went to step number four, which we haven't discussed, which is the MAR. The minimum acceptable rate of return is 15% per year. Now, this is really, really key to understand that we're going to basically say that the value of this business is going to grow to a certain point out in 10 years based on its uh, operating success, its earnings in this particular case. Okay, So the growth rate we're looking at is kind of like an earnings growth rate or a cash flow growth rate or an owner cash growth rate. But we're just going to say it's the operations of the company growing out 10 years become worth a certain amount. Now, if we're going to sell it for that certain amount of money, what should we buy it for today? That's really the essence of what the business schools call a discounted cash flow analysis. And that's the one we're working on first. And we call that the margin of safety analysis on our tool set. You with me so far? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing with the bar. Um, it's like, why is this on the checklist? I mean, don't we just say the M- the minimum acceptable rate of return is 15%? We do say that, you know, but it's on the checklist just like um, any other lever on the plane that you could adjust in some way. This is adjustable. We're, we're stipulating that we're going to put it at 15%. But not everybody in the world puts their required return at 15%. And thus, you'll have disagreements between rational uh, players in the market about what the real value of a business is. We put it at 15% because we're extremely risk averse. Um, A lot of good fund managers, I say good, they know what they're doing, um, who are running mutual funds are not putting the minimum acceptable rate of return at 15%. Their acceptable rate of return might be 10% or 8%. And the lower you go with the minimum acceptable rate of return, the more you can pay for that business. You can pay a higher price and still get that return. So I just want to, this one checkbox is potentially one you could eliminate, right? I agree with that. Okay, that's that's where I was, I was like, why is this on here? Yeah. Um, But it's just, so it sounds like it's just to remind you, hey, Mm -hmm. here's the number we're using for rate of return. That's it. So you know have you have all of the numbers you need right there in steps one, two, three, four, in order to get to step five. Um, okay. So, so I like number four then because it requires zero work. It's just a statement. <laughs> it's a statement. Yes, I'm using fifteen percent. I'm not changing. Love it. it. That's my <clears throat> favorite one so far. Awesome. And we also know that now we can find um, the growth rate, or rather, we can find the value of this business pretty easily because we go to step number five, which is just take a fact out of the market, which is the trailing 12 months earnings per share. Okay, we're just gonna take that number. Now this is really, you know, there's not any numbers in in investing that that you can't play with to get a different answer. And trailing 12 months earnings per share is a stated number. The company actually has done this much earnings in the last 12 months. So it adds, yeah, you can Google it. You Google trailing 12 months EPS and it'll come up on Google as like a stated fact. It's a, they don't even give I mean, they'll give you the links below. But you know how like Google will give you an answer in a box. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah. So there you go. And now the only thing you want to do is make sure you understand this business, which is not in this series of things uh, of checklists. So you've got to know that that's a reasonable number, that it's not the result of them selling half their business or something. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. So what I hear you saying is when I get that number, I have to say to myself, do I know, do I have some sense of why this number is this number? Like, do I have some sense of, is this reasonable? Does this make sense? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like you're basically looking out. Like, I'm not, you're just, looking I'm out not the- just taking the number. It, like Google says, it's 12. And I'm like, done 12 i'll write it down so you're saying i actually need to understand a little bit about where the 12 comes from exactly you're going to look out the back window of the car here and you're going to say okay well you know 10 11 years ago it was one then it went to 120 you know and then five years ago it was four and then you know three years ago it was seven and now it's 12 and you go like whoa that was big right that was huge so why does it go to 12? Is that the new normal? Or did they 
Did they acquire a company all of a sudden in the middle? You should know all those things before you ever get here, right? Okay. This is, okay. so I'm assuming you do. And conversely, <clears throat> if it's seven and it's been seven for the last 10 years, then I say to myself, hey, that's consistent. I guess nothing major has happened. Exactly. And I actually know that nothing major has happened because I've researched the company. Right. So let's compare that to a real estate purchase. You Somebody tells you that the rents on this house that you should rely on are $2,000 a month. And you say, okay, great. Let me see all the paperwork you got on it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And because you're looking at the house and you know, just from knowing something about your business of buying houses, that 2000 bucks a month for that house is a lot. You would see that. You would be like, hmm, wonder what the inside looks like because, hmm, that's really a lot. Oh, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah. Yeah, because you're shopping around. You're like, okay, 2000 bucks gets you, you know, this kind of house with two bedrooms. And this, this house only has one bedroom and is ugly. Yeah. You know, and you would, you would notice that the seller has his brother-in-law in there and he's jacked the rent up artificially he's probably paying his brother-in-law back a thousand bucks a month to try to make the house look like it's more valuable than it really is and not that anyone would ever do that but no. hey but you know what know your management know your management know your numbers okay so now you're at number five you've got that and we go to number six we're not going to calculate value yet we're just going to go to number six which is okay now find the free cash flow um, and the free cash flow per share so that's the same basic process. It's not quite as easy to pull up. I think you can Google it actually, and people will give you numbers, but you have to check to make sure that the number is being done properly. And being done properly is a subject we've talked about in the past. We can talk about it more in the future. But for right now, let's just assume you know how to find free cash flow. Yeah, we talked a whole bunch about this one because we, uh, we had an eagle eared listener who mm -hmm. noticed that on Netflix, the, uh, the free cash flow is different from different websites and dramatically different. And it was because they were calculating it differently using the certain number that was on the accounting statements. Um, some of them used this extra number and some of them did not use the extra number. Yep, in our, um, in our so real estate analogy, that, the real estate analogy, it's just like saying that one, uh, one house is calculating owner cash flow or free cash flow rather, um, by including all the money they spent building the, the mother-in-law unit, and another one doesn't include that at all. And you've got to be able to compare them apples to apples. So um, that's free cash flow. Owner's cash flow is the same thing. I'm assuming you can figure out how this to find owner's seven, cash flow. Number seven. Number find seven. Find owner's cash. Find owner's cash. All right. So now we've find found owner's earnings. owner's cash flow. Right. Owner's cash flow. So find the earnings per share trailing 12 months, the free cash flow per share trailing 12 months, and the owner cash flow per share trailing 12 months. And now oh, you say that before oh. each of these are the trailing 12 months. Yeah, trailing, yeah, these are all TTMs just to keep apples to apples. Because, you know, if you're in the the reason we do TTM trailing you're 12 months. You're adding this to your checklist. I, I hear you typing. I'm, I'm putting it in there. Um, <laughs> I'm writing it This now. is a draft, so we're improving it. All right, so trailing 12 months, we're due because you might be um, three quarters of the way through the year and have nine months additional data available to you about earnings and cash flow, um, and you need to take advantage of that. So you need to look it up and see what's the trailing owner cash and trailing free cash flow and create those numbers. 
Okay, question. Yeah. Now, if I'm using the annual reports in order to get these numbers, which is what I would do, I'm going to use the most recent annual report, which is probably not the trailing 12 months, unless I'm doing this on, you know, in the middle of March when they just came out with the previous annual report. Um, and even then, it wouldn't be really the trailing 12 months because you skip a few months in the middle. The point is, there's going to be a number of months <laughs> that I'm not going to have. But numbers. I digress. <laughs> trying to be accurate about my dates here because it's it's a funny thing because like i was gonna say if i were doing this on january 1st with the previous year's annual report but you don't get the annual report for the previous year until roughly like march or april so there's always a lag in our information and we have to remember that it's something i i would even put that on my checklist not this one but some other one of like don't forget your information is old very very good point yesterday yeah very good point but actually in the modern era not like where i started where you'd have to go to the library and this stuff was not two months old it was many many months old at best um in the modern era the most companies will deliver their fourth quarter report um by you know the the earnings season starts mid-february and uh for companies that end their fourth quarter in the end of december You'll start seeing those reports come out in mid-February to mid-March, um, like you said. April would be really late, actually. Yeah, April's late, but it happens. Yeah, it does happen. Um, and then you just want to you just want to recognize that you're always you know running a few weeks behind reality. And if you're in September, you should or October or November, or let's say let's say you're in uh, November. You should be looking at the third quarter and you should be Googling trailing 12 months earnings and calculating the free cash flow and owner cash based on nine more months of information. You don't want to you don't want to ignore the latest nine months and, and just assume that this year is like last year. It's real important that you stay on top of these companies. And by the way, you should have if you're following our advice, you should have done your homework and listened to the quarterly earnings report that comes from management and listen to the questions that are being asked of this company by good analysts from the professional groups. And so you you really should have kind of recognized, okay, I need to get this up to as close as I can, what's really going on here. And then you're gonna calculate number eight, which is, number eight is to calculate. Hold on, hold what, on, hold, what? hold on. So trailing 12 months you consider to be the most recent, it's not really 12, it's not really the trailing 12 months, it's its up to the most recent quarterly report that we have. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So it's not right. literally the trailing 12 months because you're always going to be off by whatever time lag there is from the end of the quarter until when they actually issue the report, which is usually about 45 days. So you're going to okay. be missing a month's worth of information probably. I'm going to put a note to myself that says this is up to... The most recent quarterly report. Right. Up to and including. Okay, to go to number eight. Okay, number eight. All right, so number eight is we're going to calculate the three values of the company that we can get from these numbers. The first one is looking for the sticker price and margin of safety, um, which we use the uh, minimum acceptable rate of return and the trailing 12 months of earnings. Then we're gonna calculate the payback time where we swap out free cash flow for earnings and we don't 
uh, worry about the MAR. It's not important. We're just looking for the growth of that free cash flow and how long it takes us to get our money back. That's the payback time. And then the cap rate analysis, which is saying that assuming I can buy this company at, uh, at the current owner's cash flow and I buy it for a 10 cap rate, what's this thing worth? So those are the three ways we like to calculate. Now, we talked yesterday or last time, last week, about a, uh, <clears throat> a zombie valuation. I'm sort of backing away from that for everybody because, you know, we're, we, I, want, I don't want to overly confuse you. And I think a lot of times people take false hope from a zombie calculation that shows that this company is selling for less than tangible book value, um, which means it looks like if you liquidated the company tomorrow, you would actually make money on your investment immediately if you own the whole thing. But this is a false security. Um, the truth of the matter is that companies that are public are being run by people who have an interest that's different than yours as the owner. And their interest is to continue to get their salary and to have employees get their salaries for as long as is humanly possible. And therefore, they are not about to uh, unload that company for its tangible book value because then their jobs would be over and all those people would have that they you know feel responsibility to would have no job either and that combination means they ain't selling this thing for tangible book value uh, there's no way they're gonna do it almost no, ever. but the, wasn't the point of that valuation that it was purely an intellectual exercise I mean no one, we never thought that these companies were going to be sold for their tangible book value well it is it is an intellectual figuring out what it would sell for if in an imaginary world that happened yeah but it's dangerous because if you don't have any other value on the business in other words there's no margin of safety it's got a bad cap rate it's got crappy payback time but you really like it because it's super underneath its tangible book value that ain't good no that's bad okay so let's just (laughs) for right now let's just leave it off (laughs) <laughs> okay, let's leave it off. I'm going to experiment a little bit. With okay, that. and then, we're, by the way, parenthetically, we will bring it back if we ever try to buy a bank. Okay, <laughs> let's just leave that aside. Well, that's yeah, that's what you said when we talked about it. I remember is that I was kind of thinking like this doesn't really apply to any companies, and then you said banks often sell yeah for multiples of their tangible book value. Yep, exactly. Okay, so now we're going to check uh, list number nine. Which number is nine. number nine. If you can get two out of those three valuations to show you've got uh, this thing on sale, then you've got this thing on sale. Oh, okay. So you need two. Yeah, let's make it two. And that way we have we always have you looking at free cash flow or owner's cash. We have you looking at the cash of the business. Mm-hmm at least one way and it's coming out good okay. all right i like it better when all three of these are available but actually trying to get a great company at a cap rate of 10 is hard to do um, that sounds like it. yeah it's tough but you know ideally we can find them once in a while and if we wait long enough for a market crash we'll get them all over the place so you get two out of three of these things uh, are on sale check off number nine not well, one no let's go with two and that way you must look at cash flow. You can't get away with only doing it on earnings. 
Earnings make me nervous because they're earnings, fictional. Because earnings are manipulable. They're very manipulable. Manipulatable? Manipulable. Manipulable. And, and I don't want you to get tricked by clever managers who show growing earnings and they bump their earnings and everything looks good. And meanwhile, you haven't really discovered that there's no cash flow in this business. If you own it all, you would never see a penny, which is terrible. Okay, okay so. So, so two out of three protects you by making sure you're using cash flow numbers. True, true. Okay. Now, number 10. We're number 10. Find a trusted guru who's buying the business. So number 10 is a trusted guru who's buying the business. Now, that's just a cool thing to put on the list because you've got to think, if no guru is buying this business, what am I doing buying this business, all right? Okay, guru means investors who you respect and think have good decision-making capabilities and are buying things that you tend to like to buy. Yep, yep, I think that's that's a good thing to have. Now, there, the fact that you don't have it doesn't mean you haven't found something fabulous that's on sale. You may have, but I would say almost always, the only time that'll be the case is when you're looking at a small business. Hmm. Something under, you know, under $500 million of market cap, maybe 200 million or 100 million, where it's just too small for a lot of these guys that we're following to put their money into it. They, they wouldn't make sense if they have 20 companies in their portfolio with $5 billion, you know, they need, what, about $250 million of ownership per company. And if you're buying a company that's $100 million of total market cap, that would mean, you know, you would have to own all of it and then some. So yeah. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. doesn't work. So it may be possible that you're finding a great smaller business and no guru is in there. Totally possible. Yeah, maybe if you have some specialized expertise and that lets you know about these tiny publicly traded companies. Otherwise, I don't know. I'd kind of stay away from I think initially it's good to stay away from them. These smaller public companies tend to be a little dicier. Now that's well, they also tend to not where you have can as do much well. liquidity because there's just not as much trading of them. Yeah. So if you want to get out, it can be hard. Yeah, it, I mean, if <laughs> it can certainly be hard if you're running any kind of real money, but um, it can even be hard if you're looking at a small company with ten thousand dollars in it, hard to get out. And, yeah. You, know, you might find yourself really with no buyers. Yeah. So, okay, let's kind of leave that to being more experienced. One more question, though. Where do you find out whether, like, what these these investor gurus are buying? Okay, well, fair enough. You you can go uh, to our website. We'll have it up on, on our website within the next month, month and a half. Which uh, is oneinvesting.com. Which is com. Um, we'll show you the, not only what the gurus are buying, but which gurus we trust, which is important. Okay. Um, you can also go to Dataroma. It's free. Dataroma. We'll put that in the notes. Dataroma.com is free. Um, they have about 70 gurus that they follow um, that are all value-oriented in gurus, but uh, and most of them are very good investors. So there's a lot more gurus over there than on our website. And then the biggest pile of gurus is on gurufocus.com, which is not free, but which you can look at free uh, and get some of the data. And um, 
and both of those are good websites, Dataroma and Guru Focus. I know Charlie Tian over at uh, Guru Focus, really good guy, working hard to get good data for you guys, um, and a great, a great website. So oh. those are those are three <clears throat> that you can do. Number eleven. Number eleven is the that there's an obvious event that has put this on sale. Okay, and that you can see. Here's how I said it: obvious event with one to three year future duration um, has created fear in the market. Has created fear. Now, what that means is that something clearly has happened, and something knocked the pro the price of the stock down by 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent. Something happened. If you're looking at a business and you see all the way through one through 10 is all good, and then you look at the price of the business in the market and it's at its high price ever, mm. then you really have to have a level of, of expertise that's more than most of you have in order to say, <laughs> oh yeah, I know this is on sale even though nobody else does. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> That's a little scary. So I much prefer that, you know, we've talked about what kind of events are, are the kinds we're looking for. The key is that you can see that this event will be over in one to three years. Okay. So for example, Volkswagen's got this monster problem that they faked the diesel emissions. That's going to be over in three years. All right. The wave of issues will be done. You know, okay, four years. I don't know, <laughs> but you can see it does. It's not going to kill the company. This is the largest by revenue automobile manufacturer in the world, and they make great products. And then it's not going to kill the company. So, those are the kinds of things we're looking for that that chop the price. That's number eleven. If you have all of these things, I would say, of course, you're working with a wonderful business. You've already found that. I would say there's a very good case to be made here that this is real viable right now. I think this is a really good checklist. Well done on your draft. Thank you very much. And we look <laughs> to improve it. So everybody out there that's looking at this, um, the rules for improving it are you cannot put a number 12 on there. You have to replace something. And we've given you a, we've given you a mulligan just by number four being the mar. We all know number four is the mar. We could replace that with your even better and very important thing that should be on the checklist. There cannot be 12 and there cannot be 10. There has to be 11 items. Thou shalt have 11. All right, so I think with that, let's wrap it up and just, oh, one more real quick thing. I want to invite everybody, if you want to come to uh, one of our workshops, we'll get you a scholarship going through the podcast. Just go to investedpodcast.com click on the button for the workshop and it'll put you into the scholarship queue and we get you in here as fast as we can. Uh, we do them <clears throat> typically once a month, you know, 10 times a year, something like that. So um, and join us and, and uh, if you're lucky, Danielle will be at one of these things coming up. So uh -huh. no promises. But no promises. Um, but let, let me just reiterate that the Education of a Value Investor, which is Guy Spears' book, it's S-P-I-E-R is his last name, it's really lovely and you should read it and and just on environment something i've been thinking about is he actually put up a picture i think of warren buffett in his office just to remind him of who his guru is in investing and um and he sort of created this situation where like he was trying not to be influenced by other people and i think let's just all you know we tried to talk about mindfulness which is a word i hate on this 
on this podcast, but that's what that's that's the essence of it. It's it's noticing what is influencing your thinking and what is influencing your energy. And something like this checklist that you just came up with and that we just went through is a fantastic way to regulate that energy and that thinking and to just focus your mind on what's important. What do I do every single time without worrying about like my emotions that day or how hungry I am and how many sneezes I have to do like whatever's going on. Oh, thanks. I think our environment that. and our checklist is a really lovely way to be thinking about our investing. I want you to realize that a checklist is to be used the way a senior captain at Delta uses the checklist, okay? So when he goes to TTM EPS, he's not going to just go, oh, yeah, I have one, right? Right. That's what I was trying to say. Go to the you fuel don't gauge and go, number. oh, yeah, I have a fuel gauge. No, it's the, the information <laughs> on the fuel gauge is what he's checking. Don't forget that. Well, that's why number four is kind of funny. The the minimum acceptable rate of return is 15%. Yes, I have that. <laughs> well, appropriately Next. said, I probably should put the check is, what's your MAR? Or set the MAR. Ah, then but the MAR is always the same. Yeah, set the MAR. Let's think on that one. All right, think on that one. All right, okay. so with that, you guys, we're all done. Time to go play. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code stockpile that's s-t-o-c-k-p-i-l-e stockpile into the application form and you guys can attend for free so everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's danielle's opinion and it is not to be taken as investment advice because i am not your investment advisor nor have i considered your personal situation as your fiduciary this podcast is for your entertainment and education only and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.